Last night you talked about how um, the gap between biblical Christianity and our culture is widening and how for a long time in society we could kind of live our Christian life and not um, offend or disrupt anyone else, but that is actually getting a lot harder. And so the other thing we mentioned is that we're actually seeing a return to the philosophy and the lifestyle of early Rome, right? Pagan Rome, um, pre-church or early church times. And so what that means is the challenges we're facing today are very similar to the challenges that the early church faced. And the good news about that is even though our world is getting darker, you see from history the early church broke through that and transformed the world. So I'm actually really excited. I don't think we're on a losing team. Well, I know we're not on a losing team. Um, but sometimes when we go through this kind of stuff and I start talking about some of the stuff that's going on, it can be depressing. Um, please don't get depressed. Realize that God's on our side. Yeah, and if right. we can be obedient to him and submitted to him, then the church will prevail, right? Because God promised us that. Um, we talked about last week, we talked about last week about how the for us in the West, the danger is not of martyrdom, but it's of comfort. Hello. Have a seat. Just grab one from the pilot. Um, so the threat to our faith is not persecution, but it's a seductive temptation of an easy life. We talked about how the Western world is in the process of cutting off its cultural roots. And um, when the West loses its Judeo-Christian foundation, it actually loses its soul. Remember we talked about how you've got flowers, you cut them, they die, right? And the same thing is happening to our Western society. So we decided that there would be three asking three questions over the three weeks. The first week was how do we get here? So that was last week. We took a flyover look at the development of worldviews over the past couple of hundred years. What brought us to this point? Um, and yeah, as I say, if you weren't here last week, grab the podcast because it'll help make everything else make sense. All right. The second question we're asking, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is what's changed? So I don't know if you've noticed, but over the past five to 10 years, there's actually been a real big shift. And things that were unthinkable five to 10 years ago are now the norm. And things that were normal five to 10 years ago are now unthinkable, right? And so what's happened in the past decade? Why this change? What's happened? So we're going to be looking at that tonight. Um, and then next week, we're going to talk about what our response will be as Christians, all right? So we're not going to get depressed. We're not going to whinge about how tough things are. We're going to be the church that Jesus calls us to be. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, Remember what a worldview is from last week. The worldview, the simple explanation of a worldview is the picture or story that you carry in your heart of what, of what the world is like, how the world is, right? Because that view or that story in your heart shapes how you think, what you believe, what you say, and how you act. That worldview can be true, partially true, or completely false. It can be consistent or inconsistent. It can be conscious or subconscious. It can change. You may have thought it through, you may have never considered it, but it's there and you hold it and it defines how you live. So it's the way that you see life and it dictates the way that you live. Now, I'm flying through this, but for some of you, hopefully all of you, this is familiar territory, all right? We also talked about eight questions that you ask to look at the different worldviews. So when you're examining a worldview, there's eight questions you ask to help give you a picture of what that worldview is all about and what that worldview looks like. So... The first question is, what is prime reality? In other words, what's the source of everything? Okay, that, your answer for everyone in this room would hopefully be God, okay? But for others, it might not be God. What is the nature of external reality or the world around us? Now, again, I'm flying through this because this is revision, all right? What is a human being? What happens to a person at death? These are four of the eight questions that you start to ask to help you understand the worldview. Hey, guys. Just grab some chairs off there and squeeze them. So, David, he'll be right. 
Question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? In other words, what differentiates us from animals? What makes us different? We have knowledge, we have communication, we have creativity, we have language, etc. How do we know what's right and wrong? Ethics. Who decides what's right and wrong, right? What is the meaning of human history or is it completely meaningless? And last question we always want to ask is, what does it mean for me? What commitments are consistent for my life with this worldview? And so those eight questions, which you're going to find in the first book I held up, if you do want to read it and get deeper into it, this is where I've got the eight questions from. Um, They're going to help you understand and examine the different worldviews. It's also important to remember that we don't think our way into a particular worldview. You experience your way in, all right? It comes from your story and your experience of life. doesn't come from rational thought. And your worldview is going to change over time, okay? Is this being familiar to this kind of feeling familiar for everyone who was here last week? Cool. Okay, then we looked at the actual worldviews in particular. We looked at Christian theism. Um, We looked at this one first because all the other Western worldviews actually came about as we began to step away from Christian theism, okay? Christian theism was the worldview that the West held all the way back to 300 AD, right? And we held it all the way through through till the 17th century when we began to step away. And we started to step away in the 17th century with the age of reason. People started to think for themselves and science was on a boom and all those things happened. And people stopped believing in God who was actually involved in their life. They started believing in God as creator, but not Lord and not savior and not friend. Okay, so there was a distancing that happened with God. And it was the first step away from God, deism. So this is the clockwork universe created by an uninterested God. Then we looked at naturalism, which is the next step. One more step away from God is to say God doesn't exist. So naturalism is atheistic. There's no God. The universe exists because of the Big Bang, and we exist because of evolution. Then we looked at nihilism, which is uh, basically the denial of everything. Nothing has value. Nothing has meaning. Nothing is true. Nothing, right? That's actually in the word, nihilism. It means nothing. Um, Nothing is true, and nothing has value. And how it's a very hopeless worldview. Then we looked at existentialism. There was two types. One was atheistic, which is where they tried to take everything from naturalism, but that got depressing, so they tried to infuse hope and go, okay, so yeah, we don't believe in God. We don't believe that we're anything more than random cells, but we still have value and we still have worth. Then you had theistic existentialism, which again takes the Christian theism but tweaks it so that we are at the centre of it. And God's kind of off on the side as our cosmic centre. Then there was the reaction against everything Western in the 60s where people went, no, stuff this, I'm going East. And they decided to embrace Eastern philosophy where everything (coughs) is God, everything is one. And particularly Hindu and Buddhist philosophy came to the fore at this point. People didn't like the the Easternness of the Eastern philosophy. They didn't like the non-materialism of it because they liked the materialistic stuff. So that's where they picked up New Age. New Age is where they grab all this Eastern philosophy they like, hold on to all the Western materialistic stuff that they like, and then chuck a bit of paganism in, mix it all together, you've got the New Age. All right? And um, that's pretty much where we ended last week. Um, But what we saw each time is it was a step after step after step away from God, finally to the point where in the New Age, we ourselves become God. Right? That's where we got to last week. So this week, we're looking at what's changed. And as I said before, over the past 10 years, everything has shifted. All right? Why? 
Now, there's a couple of reasons, and the first reason that we're going to look at is actually a fi our final worldview. It's called postmodernism. And so I'm going to spend some time looking at postmodernism tonight. Um, I didn't go into it last week. We were short on time, and I didn't want to rush it because postmodernism is actually the one that we've all grown up in. Postmodernism is the one where we all think in a postmodern way, even if you don't realize it, all right? So this is the one that has really pervaded our culture and is the dominant worldview of the 21st century. And this is the one that's turning the worst upside down. So here we go. This is now all new material. Revision is finished. <laughs> I flew through that once again. I'm going to slow down a bit now. <laughs> I'm trying to breathe. All right. Um, what I need to explain about worldviews is that what worldviews do is they step back and they look at the big picture. They want to go, okay, what's, what's happening in the world? What's happening... What is the meaning of life is really the big question they're asking, all right? And so there's a term for that, which is called the meta-narrative. So I'm just going to go here for a second and teach a little bit on what a meta-narrative is. Um, for example, I don't know if you know this, but when you read the Bible, you're actually reading three levels of narrative, okay? So what you're reading when you read the Bible, you might read, give me a story from the Bible, just a really simple story. You know, David and Goliath. Hey? David and Goliath. David and Goliath, fantastic. So you might be reading about David and Goliath. <clears throat> okay, so this is the first level of the narratives that you're reading. It's all the individual stories that are in the Bible. Okay, um, Noah and the Ark, um, David and Goliath, Daniel and Lion's Den, all those kinds of stories, right? Paul being shipwrecked, all the individual stories. That's your first level of narrative. Then there's a second level of narrative. And the second level of narrative actually is looking... What is it's panning out slightly and going, what's the story that overarches that story? All the little individual stories, but there's a bigger story being woven in. And the second one has two parts. My pen's going to die. In the Old Testament, the second narrative is God's plan for Israel. Okay. You can see this when he chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. And then you see him with um, Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and the, the, the forming of this nation. You see it when Moses brings them out of Egypt and then they to go into the promised land. And all the way through when there's kings and there's prophets, God is weaving the story where he is showing, mapping out his plan and marking out his people, Israel. Okay. And then you get to the New Testament and you see the same kind of thing, God's plan, but what is it now? What can we see God doing when you rip, pan out in the New Testament? It's God's plan for humanity. No, nope. church. church. That's right. Good guess, though. God's plan for the church. All right. Here, in, in the Old Testament, you see the birth of a nation. In the New Testament, you see the birth of the church. And all these individual stories are woven through this bigger story of what God is doing for his church. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then you've got level three. Okay. Again, you're panning out some more. And now you're looking at the Bible as a whole. And you're saying, what is the narrative that we see throughout the whole Bible? Anyone want to take a, a random guess at it? Redemption. Okay. Redemption, yeah. Any other thoughts? John 3.16 does the entire Bible in one verse. Yeah. For God love so that, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the whole Bible. But, but, but in one verse. Focuses on one verse. Yeah. Yep. That's actually brilliant. Um, Any other thoughts? You're both right. Absolutely. What it is, is we're seeing a new, was it you were right before? We're now seeing God's plan for humanity. Okay. So what we're seeing is exactly what you were saying here, Simon. It's, the, it's creation. 
It's the fall and the power of sin. It's God's promise of salvation. It's the return of Christ. And it's eternity. Sorry, I messed my message writing my bad pen. But you see how there's a bigger story always at work, okay? All the way through from Genesis to Revelation, here is the biggest story that's always being threaded through these stories and these stories. Do you see that? So as you're reading, you're actually reading three levels of narratives through the Bible. <coughs> Make sense? This one here, God's plan for humanity, is called a meta-narrative. Anyone ever heard that term before? Yep. Yes. Some of you will have, some of you haven't. Anyone not heard of meta-narrative before? Okay. Meta-narrative just means the overarching story, okay? Now, when we say story, we don't mean, like, made-up story. We just mean the story of the world, right? So the meta-narrative, according to Christian theism, is this thing here, God's plan for humanity from creation to eternity. The fall, the power of sin, God's promise of a saviour, Jesus comes. That is our meta-narrative that overarches, it's like an umbrella, overarches every other story that you find in the Bible. That is a meta-narrative. And this is the meta-narrative that we base our entire worldview on. Okay? Everything about the Christian theistic worldview is based on this particular meta-narrative. Okay? Other worldviews have different meta-narratives. So, for example, naturalism's meta-narrative is that there is no God. Right? The universe happened by the Big Bang randomly, and we all evolved. That's the overarching meta-narrative or overarching story of naturalism. Does that make sense? Mm. Everyone with me on that? Okay. So here's where this goes. There you go. It's just everything I just said. <laughs> here's where this goes when you get to postmodernism. This is where it gets tricky, and this is why postmodernism is so um, pervasive. Postmodernism actually rejects all meta-narratives. Okay, postmodernism says that different communities, like churches, may have different narratives that work for them, and that's fine. But there is no overarching umbrella meta narrative story that works for everyone or that is true for everyone. So in Christian theism, we go, hey, this is true. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. Okay, that's a meta narrative. Postmodernism says, no, there is no overarching story that's true for everyone. At all. They do not believe in that, okay? What they also believe is, hey, what's true for me might not be true for you. Okay? We say this is the truth. They go, well, that's your truth. It's not true for me. What this means is that postmodernism actually rejects any concept of universal truth. There's your truth or the narrative that works for your life and your community, and there's my truth, which is the narrative that works for me and my community, but there's no universal truth. And then it goes one step further. See, it doesn't just say, hey, look, we don't really believe that. It goes the next step. And the next step is postmodern belie postmodernism believes that any attempt to say that there is universal truth is actually just a power play. In other words... What they believe is, if I can get you to believe this truth, then I have power over you. In other words, language is power to the postmodernist. What that means is, while it's okay for you to believe what you believe, and it's okay for your community, your church or your group, whatever you belong to, to believe what your community believes, the moment that you or your community try to get me to believe that, it's nothing more than you trying to exert your power over me. And that's oppressive. 
Postmodernism says that meta narratives are about power and oppression. This is why the church and Christianity is seen as oppressive, because we believe in universal truth and we want others to believe in universal truth as well. This is not something, this is not just something that postmodernists reject. It's something they're actually violently opposed to because of what they believe it to be. They don't see it like we do. Hey, we're just trying to share our faith. They see it as you trying to oppress us, you trying to exert power over us, you trying to force your beliefs on me. And so it's oppression and a power play, and therefore Christianity as a religion is oppressive for postmodern thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah. The tricky thing for us as Christians is that we are stuck in the middle. The reason we're stuck in the middle is because, um, on the one hand, we believe in absolute truth. It's right there on the board. It's John 3.16. It's like Simon was saying. We believe in absolute truth. Therefore, because we do, we are actually rejected by postmodern society. That's the situation we're in. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, and this is why we're stuck in the middle, we ourselves are postmodern in our thinking simply because it's the world we grew up in. It's the only world we know. And so what happens then when we're caught in the middle here is we become apologetic about our faith. We become fearful about sharing the gospel. We become hesitant about saying this is true because it's easier to say, oh, this works for me. So it's easier for us as Christians because we are postmodern in our thinking, it's easier for us to say, hey, this has worked for me with the implication that may or may not work for you than it is for me to say, hey, this is the truth. I said it a second ago, I'm going to say it again. In the postmodern society, language is power, all right? This is really, really important. Whoever controls the narrative controls the people. Now, there's two sides to this as well. Firstly, the narrative is used to... The, the, controlling the narrative, sorry, is used to silence people. For example, Christians like us who believe in a meta-narrative, we, we believe in that truth, we want to share that truth. But remember, meta-narratives are oppressive, therefore Christianity is oppressive. Remember that? Therefore, if you think like that, what that means is silencing the Christian voice is good, right? Because if Christianity is oppressive, then it's actually a good thing to shut down Christians. It's a good thing to silence Christians. It's a good thing to get them to go and sit down and shut up and, hey, it's all good for you to believe what you believe, but don't push it on me. That's actually seen as a good thing because it's seen as silencing the oppressor. And so that's one side of this controlling the narrative aspect of postmodernism which is silencing oppressive beliefs. The second thing that happens here... Oh, sorry, there's that, if you wanted that. <laughs> My bad. The second thing that happens is it's used to control people. Remember that language is power. Whoever controls the narrative controls the people. So think for a second, just in your own head, of all the words we're not allowed to say anymore. Think of all the words that are now deemed hate speech. Think of all the phrases that have now been replaced by other phrases. I'm going to give you some examples. Um, what used to be called pro-abortion is now called pro-choice. Biologically male has now been replaced with assigned male at birth. Using the term fat is now unacceptable because it's shaming. Unless you yourself are overweight and you claim the word fat for yourself and then it becomes empowering. It's all right, it's about to get worse. I've been found my 
The British Medical Association stated in January that using the term expectant mother can be insensitive to pregnant transgender people. The correct term to avoid offending and to celebrate diversity is pregnant people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to get worse. <laughs> South Yorkshire Police in the UK sent this request out to the community. This is what they asked. In addition to reporting hate crime, please report non-crime hate incidents. These non-crimes include, quote, offensive or insulting comments online, in person or in writing. So the police force, the actual police force, are asking their community to report people to the police for non-criminal speech that offends them or insults them, whether it's spoken, written or online. So you tweet something someone doesn't like, you can go, you can be hauled up in front of the police. And it sounds ridiculous, but I can give you examples where it's actually happening. The arrest rate for the crime of offensive speech has risen 900%. Not sure about you, but this to me seems like a throwback to communist Russia, Nazi Germany, modern day North Korea, um, or if, you haven't read, if you've read it, the book 1984. I don't know if anyone's read that. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. There's more. Terms like microaggression, trigger warnings and safe spaces actually are not targeting the actions of people, they're targeting the speech of people. Universities are leading the charge on this. Sussex University in the UK has warned students against using the pronouns he or she because they want you to avoid assuming someone's gender. Students are to use they or them because they are the gender neutral pronouns. The University of California, Berkeley told students that asking, hey, where are you from? is racist microaggression. Many universities in the US have free speech zones. Notice I didn't say they are free speech zones. They have free speech zones. In other words, if you want to exercise your freedom of speech, you may only use it in this particular zone that they have allocated. Here's one. That's a free speech zone, that concrete platform in one of the universities in California. You have to book to use it five days in advance, and each student may only use it for a maximum of eight hours per semester. That's your free speech zone. That's the only place on the university campus that you're allowed to use it. There's another university in Georgia. The campus is 168 acres, so it's a big campus, all right? They have allowed free speech only on one small outdoor stage, about that same size, the students are only allowed to use a stage for free speech between the hours of noon and 1pm and 5 to 6pm and only on weekdays. This is in our universities. Now, I'll just say this. What starts in the universities now is going to be all through our entire society in 10, 15 years. Yeah. Right? In a poll of university students recently, 89% of them said they believe in free speech. Now, that's awesome, right? That's fantastic until you discover that in the exact same poll of the exact same students, 64% believe that hate speech should be censored or prohibited. So the same students that go, yeah, free speech is awesome, except for you should prohibit and censor um, hate speech. Which raises the question, who decides what's free speech versus hate speech? Who determines what's allowed and what's not allowed? Let me show you a video. Uh, fingers crossed if this works. Here we go. What's up, guys? This is Will Whip from PragerU. Today we're in Playa Vista talking to people about censorship. Do you think hate speech should be censored? 
Um, I do, and I believe that everything should be to an extent. It's hard to set boundaries when um, there's a lot of different things that we can be talking about. It's hard to specify. Do you think that hate speech should be censored? Uh, I do. Do you think that hate speech should be censored? No. I think that... I mean, I think people have the right to their opinion. If you're offending me right now, should that be censored? Um, <laughs> that would be considered hate speech to me. Yeah, it would be, but um, I don't know. <laughs> hate speech, I feel like that's anybody who's negative. Like, anybody whose intentions or whose, uh, basically whose intentions aren't pure. This is a free country, so, I mean, everyone's opinion should be known, but... I think it gets to a point where it can be a little vulgar. Whatever affects people in a negative way, I think should be censored, just because there is so much hate in the world right now that that should not be going on, I guess. What if I say, like, I hate women on Facebook? Should that be allowed, or should they be able to choose? I think that should, see, that particular example should be allowed. Um, be ready for the, for the hate, you know, the hate comments. Look, if someone says, I hate black people, like... You know, I, I, I'm not comfortable or I'm not happy to see it, but that's different than, like, go kill black people. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I don't want the second, the latter to be encouraged. The former, it's, an, it's unfortunate, but whatever. Who do you think should define what hate speech is? Um, I think uh, educators. I think educators should um, put together a, a global think tank, almost like a UN think tank. Who decides what and what isn't hate speech? Um... It seems like there's a line. There is a line, but I feel like it's hard to set that line when everyone has a personal belief of what they consider offensive. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the girls said, you know, anything that's insulting or hurtful should be censored. So if I say something that's perfectly reasonable, but you get offended, I should be censored. That's dangerous. Here's my point. In this postmodern world, language is power. And whoever decides what words are free speech and what words are hate speech has the power, right? Whoever controls the words we use controls the culture. And our freedom of speech is being shut down. We have actual cases in Australia where people have gone to court for saying what they believe. They've been taken to court, not criminal court yet but the civil court yes language is key because language changes society and the language that we're allowed to use or not allowed to use determines society's acceptance of a particular ideology if we're not allowed to talk about something then that can't be discussed and debated we can't have opposing views we can't change our mind if we only hear <coughs> the, the viewpoint that's allowed and this is why free speech is now demonized as hate speech Again, if anyone's read the book 1984, this will feel very familiar. If you haven't read it and this is interesting to you, I cannot um, recommend the book 1984 enough. It's a fiction, work of fiction that was written in 1948, but it is eerily prophetic. And you'll read it and go, oh my gosh, was this written this year? It's freaky. So I highly advise you read it. Um, so postmodernists recognize language as a way to change mindsets and change society. Therefore, language is used as a weapon, not only to restrict what we're able to say, but also to affect what society thinks. All right? I love the quote that's attributed to Voltaire. He said, I disapprove of what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. This is why free speech is important. 
even people, even people who say horrendous things, despicable things, if we shut them down, what's to stop someone shutting us down? Their freedom of speech guarantees my freedom of speech, okay? And in a free speech society, what that also means is if they say despicable things, we can debate, we can argue, we can actually point out the holes in their argument. So free speech is actually very, very important, but it is being shut down. All right, let's keep talking about postmodernism. Oops, sorry. That's what I just said. This is bad when I forget to do that and I go off notes. All right, um, I'm just going to look at two of the questions. Maybe those eight questions we used to examine a worldview. I'm just going to hone in on two of those questions very, very quickly with regards to postmodernism. First of all is the whole question of ethics, Okay. In postmodernism, if there's no meta-narrative, if there's no universal truth that dictates what we believe and why we believe it, then how do we know what's right and wrong? Remember, in a postmodern world, whoever controls the narrative controls society. And this also extends to ethics. What that means is that good and evil are simply social constructs or maybe even linguistic constructs. Okay, Whatever the language is used to define that helps to define if that thing is good or evil. Social good is whatever society deems it to be, but the reality is social good is not just what society deems it to be, it's the power brokers behind the scenes that determine what is actually good. What that means is good becomes whatever the influential people say it is. The ones that control the language control what is good or evil. I'll give you a couple of, I'll give you an example, I'll give you one example. This is how we end up in a society where if you believe that killing an unborn child is wrong, you are the one who is demonised as anti-woman and a bigot because the influential ones in society have decided that abortion is a woman's right. Therefore, that is what is now good. Opposing that good is now bad. See how the language has shifted, okay? It's not killing a baby, it's reproductive rights, okay? How, are you, how dare you oppose my reproductive rights, right? You white male. Okay, anyone heard this before? <laughs> um, therefore, my reproductive rights are good. Therefore, you opposing it is bad. Therefore, you are bad, okay? This is how language determines what is right and wrong in a postmodern society. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, the other question I want to quickly touch on is question seven. What is the meaning of human history? Um. Postmodernism is, is weird in the sense. They don't just look back at history and go, okay, well, that's what happened. The postmodern view or the postmodern meaning of history is actually continually changing because of the shifting thoughts of postmodernism all the time. All right, let me explain. There's two things. Shift, uh, society's views on things are continually shifting. Therefore, they look back at his, history and they judge what happened then by today's standards. All right? What that means is, number one, because they believe that history is from the perspective of the, victor, of the victor or the oppressor, they don't trust history. If it got written in the history books, it's been written from the perspective of the person who was victorious. That person who was victorious was obviously oppressive. It doesn't tell it from the, from the perspective of the victim groups. Therefore, I can't trust that version of history. Does that make sense? And look, to be honest, there is an element of truth in this, okay? Um, the victors do usually write the history books from, that, from their perspective. So there is an element of truth, but what, is, what that has meant is postmodernists don't actually trust anything they're taught in history. The second thing that happens is because people's perspectives are always changing, 
and their opinion of history or historical figures is constantly changing means that we judge history or we judge historical figures by today's standards. This is why we now have Winston Churchill demonised as a racist. Now, he wasn't perfect by any means, but he did actually help us win World War II, yeah. right? We're not a Nazi country because of people, leaders like Winston Churchill, but he is now being demonised. Um, also, a lot of the founding fathers in the US are now denigrated and despised because despite them doing many great things for their nation, they also kept slaves. Now, I'm not saying slavery was right. Slavery was horrendous. But because of that, every, it overrides and wipes out any other good that they did. Okay? Um, last week, um, a particular speaker was speaking at George Washington University, and he, his, the topic of his um, speech was actually George Washington. So he was talking through the things about George Washington at George Washington University. And a group of students got so angry at him talking about the good of George Washington, they stood up in the middle of the speech, they started screaming obscenities at him, and they disrupted the speech for about 15 minutes before they stormed out. At George Washington University, opposing a speech about George Washington. So this is where it's getting to. So now I'm not saying that these historical figures are perfect, but what people are saying now is, okay, they did this wrong, and we're judging by today's standards, not by those standards, and therefore we wipe out everything that they did. Okay. Let's move on slightly. Still talking about postmodernism. Any, any, everyone with me so far? Yeah. Okay. Reality is we've lived in a postmodern society for several decades now. Um, lots of decades, actually. Um, but the examples I've been giving you in the video I showed you are new, all right? So something has shifted in the past probably 10 years and this is, in part, due to the rise of something called postmodern tribalism. Um, sorry, we've got a few new additions, so we're running out of chairs. So, let me explain postmodern tribalism to you. It's still got the postmodern thinking in there, but it's added this tribal feel to it. All right, I'm going to explain to you what this is. Postmodern tribalism refers to the group that you fit into, all right, and it moves us from individuals with lots of different opinions into tribes where everyone shares similar viewpoints and similar opinions. And what happens is people's loyalty is then to the group. And you tend to go along with the group rather than voice your own ideas. What this means is my happiness is then determined by how well I fit into my tribe. All right? How well I measure up to my tribe's ideas of success or my ideas of what is true, or my tribe's idea of what is good, or my tribe's idea of what is valuable. How well I measure up to those ideals determines my level of happiness or my feelings of success within my tribe. Okay, let me explain what the tribe actually is. Your tribe um, may have little or nothing to do with your ethnicity. Usually it has nothing to do with your ethnicity. Your tribe might be based on your gender identity, might be based on your feminism, might be based on your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, your sexuality, your religion, your education, your politics, etc. Okay? What it is, is you fit into a group, and that group becomes your tribe, and your tribe think the same way, your tribe has the same viewpoints, the same um, opinions. Now, hi, latecomer. <laughs> One. <laughs> Can't trust the Connaught children, right? One of the many issues with postmodern tribalism is that it actually shuts down healthy debate. Now, I've already showed you about how postmodernism shuts down healthy debate, shuts down free speech, but the tribalism actually shuts down debate as well. 
One of the things that happens, firstly, is that no one within the tribe can speak against the tribe. Um, because in postmodern tribalism, it's not about what you as an individual thinks. It's about what your tribe thinks. And once you're accepted into your tribe, it's very important that you stay accepted in your tribe. Because it's very scary to be outside of your tribe. No tribe, right? This is where you fit. Your tribe is what gives you value. It's what gives you validation. It's what gives you family. It's what gives you worth. And so what happens is people might accept or go along with what your tribe dictates rather than actually thinking for yourself or voicing any concern. You may have the concerns, but you'll keep them to yourself because it doesn't work to speak up within the tribe. Groupthink is the norm within the tribe. No one wants to be the person that speaks up. No one wants to be the person that challenges the status quo within the tribe. No one wants to be the person who brings instability or conflict within the tribe because tribe loyalty is everything. Conflict is what you have with people outside the tribe, not inside the tribe. And so what that means is people who are within the tribe may have concerns about what is going on in the tribe or, or the opinions and worldviews of the tribe, but they will not speak up about it. Numerous examples of this, but a really easy one um, is actually the case of sexual abuse within religious institutions, right? The tribe mentality meant that people who knew stuff was going on stayed silent rather than risk damaging the strength of the tribe that they belong to. Because if the tribe breaks down, where do they fit? Okay, the tribe anchors them. That tribe falls apart, you fall apart. That's why people would stay silent. The second way that postmodern tribalism shuts down debate is that no one outside the tribe can criticise the tribe. Okay, so it shut down debate inside the tribe, but now it also shuts down debate outside. No one outside of your tribe can criticise your tribe. Remember, postmodernism says that there are no meta-narratives that apply to everyone. Okay, the narrative that works for you or works for your tribe is very important because it works for your tribe. And it's true for your tribe. The moment someone from outside your tribe tries to criticise or have an opinion about or speak against the tribe, then that is them imposing their narrative on the tribe and that is oppression. Let me give you some examples. Criticise my sexuality-based tribe and you're homophobic. Criticise my gender identity tribe and you are transphobic. Criticise my feminist tribe and you're misogynistic. Criticise my socioeconomic tribe and you are elitist. Criticise my ethnic tribe and you're a racist. Criticise my upbringing and you're xenophobic. Criticise my religion and you're Islamophobic. Any of that sound familiar? Oh. And so it creates a place where I don't have to pay attention to anything you say because you, your statements carry no authority within my tribe. This is why, one of the reasons, why horrendous acts such as female genital mutilation still occur in Australia today because, number one, there's no room inside the tribe to speak up and there's no room outside this tribe to speak up. Remember, one of the key arguments... Oh, let's have a look. Okay. One of the key arguments of postmodernism is that every meta-narrative is just an attempt to gain power over another person or over another tribe. No meta-narrative is true. They are just made up to get the masses to believe you, at which point you have power over them. This is what postmodernism believes. Now, to restore this unfair power balance that it sees in society, the tool that postmodern tribalism uses is actually power itself. In other words, my tribe believes that we are oppressed by your tribe. 
So our goal is to maximise the strength and the power of our tribe so that your tribe can't disempower us or disenfranchise us. So in theory, postmodernism is all about everyone living in harmony. <laughs> but in reality, it breeds, dis breeds mistrust, it breeds a lack of communication between tribes, and it breeds a series of power plays to ensure that my tribe is not disempowered or oppressed. And so while it all seems good on the surface, oh, you just believe what you want to believe, and it's all good, it's all true for you. But in reality, it actually breeds inequality, misunderstanding, mistrust, and animosity between different tribes. Everyone's still with me? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. In addition to this, postmodern tribalism creates a culture of victimhood. Um, many groups actually use their status as victims as a means to stake their claim for resources and for power. Now, hear me really, really clearly. It's really important not to belittle victims um, or to minimise what they've gone through. And we need to do everything we can to fix situations and repair systems that hurt or disempower people, right? I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this particular worldview which is actually harmful to victims, all right? Because often there is no incentive for tribes to overcome oppression because their status as a victim is the very thing that gives them power that they would otherwise lack. Their victimhood actually is what gives them a voice. Um, the greater the injustice, the greater the claim of victimhood, and thus the greater claim for justice or restitution or power. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in every tribe who has been victimised is like this. I'm saying this is the um, worldview behind the tribe. This is what drives the tribe, okay? This is the agenda behind it. It doesn't mean everyone in there is like this. This is the, what's at play behind the scenes, all right? What then starts to happen is it can actually create a competition between various minority tribes, including, by the way, Christian tribes, okay? Mm. I used a whole, example, a whole bunch of examples there. I didn't actually mention um, churches or Christian groups can actually become just as tribal as a whole lot of other groups. We don't talk to anyone outside our tribe. We don't hear any other opinion outside of our tribe. We close ranks in our tribe when stuff goes down, okay? can be just as unhealthy within the church as it is outside the church, and that's very, very important to understand. And as, I'm off notes now, sorry, as persecution begins to increase in our society, it's very important that we don't become the tribe that just goes insular or uses our victimhood as a power play, okay? We need to be careful that we rise above this, right? We don't come in down to this level, okay? So this is, you know, I'm not just pointing the figure, finger at other tribes. I'm saying that we are just as um, likely to become like this, okay, if we're not very careful. It can create a competition between various tribes about who is the bigger victim and therefore who has the strongest claim for restitution. I'll give you an example. This is literally being played out between two tribes at the moment. On the one side, we have the lesbian feminist tribe. and On the other side, we have the transgender tribe. What's actually happened in the past 12 to 18 months is that um, lesbian feminist groups believe that the transgender agenda, transgender agenda that's hard to say, um, you know, in other words, men who believe they're women, so the transgender women, aka men who believe they're women, that that agenda actually disempowers everything the feminists have fought for as oppressed women. In other words, they're going, hey, as feminists, we have fought forever for, for the rights to, of women. As lesbians, we fought for the rights of gay women, okay? And now you're saying that my gender means nothing? That's everything we fought for. So on this side, they're going, hey, you guys are actually undermining <coughs> our fight. 
Okay, because you're wanting transgender rights. Well, that's actually depriving women of their rights. So now there's a battle between the two. These guys are saying you guys are depriving our rights. The transgender groups then reacted by coining a new, t a new word, which is TERF. The word TERF stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And it's a derogatory term. It's not a pleasant term. And they are calling the feminist tribes transphobic. Some gay pride parades have now begun, begun banning trans people from taking part because they believe it belittles the victories they've won for gay rights. All is not peaceful in the LGBT community. But this is not specifically the problem of the LGBT community. I've just used that as an example. It's actually the typical end result of postmodern tribalism, where victimhood equals a voice and where victim status for your tribe equals power for your tribe. Victimhood is what gives the tribe the power in this context. Do you see that? And so what's actually happening is tribes that formerly stood together are now turning on each other, turning against each other because there's the fight for who's got the power, who's got the greatest victim status, therefore who's got the greatest voice, therefore who has the greatest power. And it's now actually happening within that. Does that make sense? Mm. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say. tribalism sends a signal to true victims actual victims, that they are better off staying in their victimhood than moving forward, than getting free. And that's a tragedy. Postmodern tribalism uses suffering as a political lever without actually working to eliminate the suffering. Postmodern tribalism is culturally reductionistic. Big word, basically what it means is it reduces a person's identity down to a couple of key features of their background. Reduces their identity down to the tribe they belong to the features that really count. So the person's identity as a human being, as an individual with personality and what they think and what they enjoy and what they believe and what they don't like and what they don't like, all the infinite numbers of things that make us different from each other actually don't matter. What tribe you belong to is what matters. And depending on that tribe, it either gives you a greater voice or less voice. This is called intersectionality. You may have heard of that term before. I want to show you another video. Now, you may not agree with everything that's said here, but I want you to get the concept of what's talked about. Okay, this is intersectionality. It's also by a politically conservative video uh, maker. So they talk about the left. If you are politically left, please forgive the guy. Here we go. You probably think your opinions matter. You probably think you're an individual with unique experiences, thoughts, and ambitions. Well, I hate to break it to you, but according to current leftist orthodoxy, you're wrong. You see, your opinion only matters relative to your identity and where that identity ranks on the hierarchy of intersectionality. If you're now thinking, what the hell are you talking about? You haven't spent much time on a modern college campus. Intersectionality is a form of identity politics in which the value of your opinion depends on how many victim groups you belong to. At the bottom of the totem pole is the person everybody loves to hate, the straight white male. And who's at the top? Well, it's very hard to say, because new groups claim victim status all the time. No one can keep track. So, how does this intersectionality thing play out? Something like this. Let's say you're a gay white woman. Your opinion matters, but less than that of a gay black woman. Why? Because while all women are oppressed by the patriarchy, and all gays are oppressed by the heterosexual majority, blacks have a victim status that whites obviously don't. Of course, a gay black woman's victim status is less than that of a black trans woman who ranks below a black Muslim trans woman, and so on. The more memberships you can claim in oppressed groups, the more aggrieved you are and the higher you rank. Wow. Get it? Good. 
because it's about to get even more complicated. Intersectionality takes your victim status and uses it as the basis for creating alliances with other victim groups. 30 or 40 years ago, activists encouraged racial solidarity among blacks to combat oppression. But today, that's not enough. Today's activists demand blacks make common cause with other allegedly oppressed people, gays, lesbians, transgenders, Palestinians, Native Americans, whomever. Here's the logic. A black gay and a Hispanic gay may not belong to the same victim group racially, but they do belong to the same victim group on the basis of their sexuality. By focusing on the places where various victim identities intersect, intersectionality creates a united us versus them paradigm. Righteous victims rising up together to fight the oppressor, those dreaded straight white men. This explains why at a rally protesting the treatment of Palestinians by Israel, you might see a contingent of lesbian activists. That's intersectionality at work. They're so united by their victim status that it doesn't matter if Islamists throw gays off of buildings or murder female family members who defy their father's wishes. Victim solidarity trumps all other considerations. The term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, a professor of law at Columbia University. She explains that intersectionality was my attempt to make feminism, anti-racist activism, and anti-discrimination law do what I thought they should, highlight the multiple avenues through which racial and gender oppression were experienced. To Crenshaw, America is a terrible place full of victim groups, each with their particular set of grievances. Why shouldn't these victim groups get together and form a political coalition unified by the belief that the majority society has harmed them? That some professor tucked away in an ivory tower would come up with this nonsense is not surprising. What is surprising and disturbing is that so many people actually go along with it. America is the most open, least racist nation on the planet. That Professor Crenshaw is free to spin her nonsensical theories and get paid well for it should offer adequate proof of that. And since when do you have to live someone's experience in order to understand them? You don't have to live as a slave in order to understand that slavery is cruel and wrong. You don't have to live as a woman in order to recognize the evil of rape. Finally, and most important, intersectionality promotes the biggest hoax of all, that we aren't individuals who are to be judged on the basis of how we act, but are merely members of groups to be judged on the basis of our group identity. In other words, you and I as individuals with our unique experiences, thoughts, and ambitions count for nothing. Our racial and sexual identity count for everything. It's hard to imagine an idea less likely to produce a free and equal America than that. But what do I know? I'm just a straight white male. I'm Ben Shapiro for Prager University. Interesting, hey? <laughs> yeah. So postmodernism, when it first came in, was hailed as this brave new world where everyone was able to think and believe whatever they chose. Postmodern tribalism was hailed as the ultimate people power, a voice for groups that didn't have a voice. But in reality, what's happened is it's, it has exposed a lack of confidence in truth. It's exposed a lack of trust in reality and a lack of hope for the future. I love the reality of Christianity. Yeah. With a cult, within a cultural framework that wants to, sorry, within a cultural framework in our world that wants to group people based on race or sex, Christianity speaks of a higher culture, the kingdom of God, right? And Paul reminded us in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I love in Revelation actually has the ultimate cultural narrative. Revelation 7 verse 9 to 10 says, there's a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What I want you to notice with this is notice how the worship of God occurs within the context of different nations, tribes, peoples and languages. People retained their identity. They retained their 
tribal um, connections, their languages, but they are still one in worship towards God. You see that? I love that, how Christianity just is able to take that and go, you know what? You're an individual. God created you with all the love in his heart that he has as he created you to be who you are. And then together we come as one and we worship God. And that's how it works in Christianity. And that's how it should work, right? Okay, let's keep going. So that's all I'm going to say on postmodernism and postmodern tribalism. I hope that made sense. Mm. Uh, yeah. I have a really quick question. Yeah, go for it. Who comes up with all of that crap? <laughs> Oh, that's a serious question. Yeah. Like, so yeah. how, who comes up with that to then spread that crap so that people start getting on board and believing? Yeah. Like, the the names of it come later, right? But So the shift happens in society then and then sociologists look at what's happening in society and name it later. But um, right. the shift is happening. I don't know where. I, I know the, the key voices now are um, it's particularly celebrity, media, um, I'm sure there's a whole lot of power brokers behind the scenes that we have no idea about, pulling some strings. Um, I don't want to give any guesses because I'll start sounding like a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> right? But there's no doubt there's people behind the scenes that are, you know, especially if you look at the media, how the media speaks with one voice. There's no variety of opinion in the media. You go, okay, there's something at play here that's, yeah. that's bigger than, yeah. Where or who comes up with it, I don't know. No idea. So Sometimes it's also a... A, um, almost an organic movement. So, for example, we talked last week about in the 60s with the rise of people wanting Eastern philosophy was a, was a reaction among young people to what was happening in the West with the war and a whole lot of things they didn't like. So it was almost a groundswell movement, um, much more organic than probably what's happening today. I think there's some people... I think there's a bit more <coughs> intention behind the scenes these days in the East. Yeah. All right, so... Postmodern tribalism and postmodern sorry, postmodernism and postmodern tribalism have really contributed to the shift we've seen over the past ten years, but they're not the only things that have contributed to it. Um, there are some other factors as well that we'll just run through quickly. Number one is this rejection and abandonment of Judeo-Christian beliefs. Now, obviously, this comes from a lot of postmodern um, thinking, which rejects the meta narrative. Um, but what you need to understand is that this has happened. Um, sorry. Beliefs form our values and beliefs form our ideals. So if you abandon the beliefs, it means you abandon the values and the ideals that you then live by, all right? And so what's happened is they've rejected the beliefs, which means we then lose the values and the ideals of the Judeo-Christian ethic as well. The rejection is due to a mix of all the worldviews we've talked about, particularly postmodernism, but you can look at it also with the rise of secularism. Secularism is either the rejection or just the indifference to religion. Okay, can be the outright rejection, like the opposing of religion, or it could just be the, I don't give a rip, right? Just doesn't even rate on our radar of religion. And the second thing that you could also narrow it down to is the rise in pluralism and relativism, which again comes out of that postmodern thinking of there is no right and wrong. If it's right for you, then great. If it's, you know, if it's wrong for me, then that's great. You do you, boo. That kind of thing is where this comes from, all right? The second thing... The second thing we've seen is a change in meaning of ideas away from the Judeo-Christian root. Now, this is a whole lot more subtle, okay? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples, but it's actually something that we're, most people are very unaware of, but it actually affects the way that we live. It's a little bit to do with the language that is used. We talk about this language a lot within postmodernism, how language actually shapes what society thinks. 
And that has happened a lot of the time so subtly that we're not even aware of it. And so what's happened, for example, is the concept of freedom used to be I am set free for good works. Okay, If you're coming from a Christian theist perspective, Christ has set us free and I've been set free for good works. My freedom is not to be abused, all right? You even go back 100 years, you know, when World War I was kicking off and people were like, well, I'm going to do my duty and go and do this. I, they, were, they were free, but they were free to choose to do the right thing. They were free to take their responsibility and do their duty. And that was a core part of being free was the freedom to choose to do that responsible thing, right? Responsibility was a big part of it. That has now shifted where freedom is now, I'm free to please myself, Freedom is now self-centred. Freedom is now about my rights, not about my responsibilities. And people are completely aware of this shift. But it's happened to all of us. And all of us think like that. We don't even realise it to a great extent. The third thing is society has tried to keep the key values and the ideals from the (coughs) Judeo-Christian ethic but they're trying to conform them or twist them to fit them into a secular worldview that has no foundation. (coughs) So they're keeping the core values of Judeo-Christian, but they're trying to squeeze them into something where it doesn't fit. I'll give you an example to to explain that to you. How do you account for the value of sanctity of life when your worldview declares you're nothing more than a random collection of molecules? If we are just a random collection of molecules, why is murder wrong? Okay, so what they're trying to do is they go, no, no, life is sacred, murder is wrong, but yet we're living in a worldview where we are nothing but molecules. What that then does, <laughs> this is why the people who benefit from that value of sanctity of life, the group that benefit from life is sacred, is actually getting smaller. There's a whole lot of people now where life is not sacred for them. If you're unborn, your life is not sacred. If you're aged, your life is not sacred. If you are terminally ill, your life is not sacred. Um, A lot of the times, not so much in Australia, but certainly in a lot of European countries, if you have mental illness, your life is not sacred. If you are handicapped, your life is not sacred. And so this collection of people that benefit from the concept of sanctity of life is getting smaller and smaller because there is no universal basis for why life is sacred. (coughs) And if there's no universal basis for why life is sacred, sanctity of life is then based on who has the power to decide whose life is sacred, who is worthy of life, rather than on the inherent worth that God gives to every human being. Because we've taken away the foundation, then the whole whole premise begins to fall apart. (coughs) Another example, how do you have a fair justice system? when your worldview says there's no such thing as right and wrong. Again, ethics is then decided by whoever is the power broker, whoever holds the power in that society, rather than a universal standard based on a good God. And so the biblical (coughs) roots that give rise to these Western ideals have actually been cut, and now the fruit is withering. And this is what we're seeing. One of the many consequences of these trends is the prevailing attitude, I mentioned this briefly last week, in the West, among intellectuals and power brokers, which is ABC, anything about Christianity. Any wild and wacky concept is considered and embraced as long as it isn't Judeo-Christian. For example, now this is going to be a little bit controversial to bring up, but Israel Folau. 
Ezra Alfalau posted some stuff on Twitter, and regardless of whether you think he should have posted it or not, regardless of whether he was wise to post it or not, doesn't matter. As a result of him posting this, he lost his sponsors, he lost his contract with Rugby Australia, the NRL doesn't want him, Tonga doesn't want him. At the beginning of the 29 season, 29 season, 2019 season, sorry, talk properly, um, he was a leading try scorer. Now he can't get a job because he said what he believed publicly. That's on the one hand, and he's a Christian, right? Compare that, on the other hand, with a guy, a kid <coughs> called Desmond Napolis. I think, I don't know how he's out. He's better known as Desmond the Amazing. Desmond is a drag kid who has been dressing in drag since the age of two when he became obsessed with watching RuPaul's Drag Race. At the age of eight, he was a viral sensation when he was filmed dancing at New York City's Pride March. He shot to fame at the age of 10 when he hosted a kids' fashion show at RuPaul's Drag Con, RuPaul calling him this gorgeous little queen. Since then, he's been a fixture on talk shows, YouTube, and on stage, including dancing in gay bars in New York and San Francisco while men threw money at him. Desmond is gay and has autism, calls himself a spokes kid for the LGBT movement, particularly gay and drag kids like himself. Now, I just want to contrast for a second Israel Folau, who, by saying what he believed publicly, lost all of his sponsors and his job and is now pretty, pretty much unemployable in this particular field. On the other side, Desmond the Amazing has just signed on as a model for shoe company Converse, company Converse to market the new Converse Pride collection, was awarded Converse's first Pride Award, award for his work in the LGBT community and awarded a Top 100 Influencers Award. He's also sponsored by Mattel's Lux Cosmetics Spa, and has been a runway model for five years. He is currently 12 years old. Now, I'm not having a go at Desmond, he's just a kid, all right? Although I do think his parents are exploiting him and I think it's criminal. My point is, I want you to look at what is acceptable today and what is not. Someone saying their religious beliefs on Twitter five or 10 years ago, no one would have blinked an eye. Now it's unthinkable. A child, Dancing in gay bars for money five years ago was unthinkable. It's now mainstream. Yeah. If you Google this kid, you'll find 30 million Google hits on him. I said this last week, but it's worth repeating. As Christians, we have to be awake to what's going on. And we don't want to go on the attack like Peter chopping off the ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we also don't want to play the victim like Peter denied Jesus at his, at his trial. All right? We've got to respond the way God wants us to. I'm going to go into that more next week, but I wanted to say that now because this is disturbing. Okay? And we've got to go, okay, let's not react. Let's go, okay, God, how do you want us to respond? How do we be the church of Jesus Christ in this kind of world? In a, in a world where a child who should be loved and nurtured is being exploited and is making money and fame and is all over TV as a result of this? I mean, that's heartbreaking, right? So we've got to respond the way God wants us to respond rather than react, okay? One of the other significant shifts... How long have I got? 15 minutes, okay. <laughs> One of the other significant shifts that has taken place over the past few years is a shift called globalisation. Um, human interconnectedness is now truly global. Globalisation has been a word that's been around for probably 15 to 20 years, but really our connectedness in the past 10 years has just shot through the roof, Okay been driven by the technology, by the screen in our pockets that connects us to the world, literally, right? Globalisation has brought a... There you go. Globalisation has brought a revolution in the way that we think. 
Globalization has changed the speed of information. It's instant, right? The scale of information, it's infinite, literally. And the simultaneous nature of information. As soon as you want to know something, you've got the information. As long as you've got 4G, you've got the information you need, right? Thanks to Google. And that's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there are consequences that are not great. Yeah. All right? One of the first, well, the first consequences we'll look at is that globalization has affected our sense of time. Now, I'm talking with these next few things, not just about how it's affected the world, but how it's affected us as, as Christians as well, all right? So it's affected our sense of time. Prior to the invention of the clock, people lived by the seasons, right? It was harvest time. It was planting time. It was, I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I have no idea. But they lived by the seasons and by nature and what was happening in the, in the world, right? Then the clock was invented, and now people live by the clock, the railway timetable. You've got to catch the bus at this time. You've got to be at the train by this time. You've got, the clock was invented, and that now helped us how we lived, right? Helped us dictate how we lived. Now we live in the age of the instant, no longer do we wait for a letter to be delivered across the world. Now we send an instant message or make a FaceTime call and it happens literally the instant that we touch our screen. This gives us a world of instant gratification and a whole lot of blessings and it's fantastic. But it also gives us a world of constant overload. We've shrunk time but we haven't conquered time. And our time saving has turned into time slaving. So our to-do lists and our text messages and our emails and our breaking news popping up on our screen and our messages and our social media posts are faster and more crowded than ever. We live in the tyranny of the urgent. The boundaries between work and free time, between public and private, are actually beginning to, to dissolve. We multitask everything, including our relationships, and we are literally just rats in the rat race. Okay? I shouldn't say literally. We're not literally rats. <laughs> it's terrible, terrible English. Instead of survival of the fittest, it's now survival of the fastest. Who's got time to think for themselves when the internet provides an instant answer? Who's got time to seek out biblical wisdom? You can just read the verse of the day that pops up from your version. Who has time to meditate on God's word or to worship or to pray? Our breakneck life intrudes on everything and it's impacted our ability to quiet our soul and hear from God. And for those who don't know Christ... It leaves people in a, in a constant state of disquiet or a, a disrupted soul without rest because they don't even have those moments where they go to God. They're just like this all the time. So that's the first effect of globalisation. The second effect of globalisation is that it magnifies evil. Now, there has always been evil and suffering in the world. That is, since the, since the Garden of Eden, there has been evil and suffering and horrendous things happening in the world. But globalisation magnifies it spreads it instantly, and in the process, desensitizes us to it. It's hitting us all the time, and so we're desensitized to it. I'll give you an example. Bullying. It's always happened. It's always been evil. But once upon a time, it was confined to the schoolyard, and when the kid got home, they were at least safe from the bully. But now, it's broadcast live on school students' phones, spreads like wildfire, desensitizes <coughs> students to violence, like they're literally filming it instead of stopping, getting them to stop it, right? And the victim can't escape it because not only is it at school, it's in their home on all their screens, right? I'll give you another example. Porn was once only accessible if you were, if you were brave enough to go, or brave, crazy enough to brave the seedy shops on a back street somewhere for a dodgy magazine or a video. Now it's a click of a button away from everyone, including innocent kids. 
and it's spread online. As it has spread online, the demand for it has increased, which then has caused a rise in sex trafficking of men, women and children who are now slaves to meet that global demand. Issues such as sex trafficking, slavery, political corruption, destruction of reputation and the pursuit of power are now global issues that affect every corner of the world. And it also means because of the globalisation, they're now harder to fight than ever before. You're not fighting it down the street. You're not fighting it in your community. It's global. What do you do about sex trafficking when it's happening in Europe? What do you do, right? You feel helpless and so therefore you just do nothing. Okay, this is what globalisation does. Slight shift. The other thing, that's all I'm going to say on globalisation. <laughs> I talked about a bunch of different worldviews last week. Talked about postmodernism tonight. Talked about globalisation tonight. And these worldviews are at the heart of the way people see the world. Okay? They're ideas <coughs> that help you understand and, and, and navigate the world around you, your worldviews. But there's another thing as well. As well as the things that I've gone through tonight, there's another thing that's caused this, this recent shift. And it's something called modernity. Um, modernity is not a worldview, although it includes worldviews. Modernity is a weird kind of thing. Basically, modernity is everything that makes up the modern world. Everything. So it includes all the ideas we've been talking about in worldviews, but it's far more than just worldviews. Let me put it this way. If I've got a particular worldview, I can decide to abandon that worldview if something else comes along that fits me better. Okay? For example, there might be someone who is... Um, postmodern believes there's no right, they're, they're a moral relativist, they believe there's no right or wrong, you get to choose what's right and wrong. They may have an encounter with God, <coughs> become a Christian, discover that He determines what right is right and wrong, and actually change their ideas to believe in moral absolutes of right and wrong based on Christian theism. So their worldview may shift when they become a Christian, okay? That can happen. However, modernity, you can't escape because it's the world we live in, it's not just the ideas that we are surrounded by. It is ideas, but it's also institutions, government, business, education, a big one of education. It's also where we live. Do you live in the city? Do you live in an urban area? Do you live in the country? Do you live in the suburbs? It's also how we live. Airplanes, cars, iPhones, TVs, computers, online shopping, supermarkets. And it's also the speed that we live at. The internet, email, careers, instant messaging changes very, very quickly. Everything is fast. So modernity is ideas, institutions, where we live, <coughs> how we live, and the speed that we live at. <clears throat> it's impossible to escape if you live in the Western world, and it's impossible to escape its impact. Yeah. And big call, but I'm going to say for Christians living in the West, modernity represents the greatest challenge that the Western world has faced. Now let that sit and have a drink. <laughs> now that's a big call. Um, am I saying it's a bigger challenge than the rise of atheism and evolution? Yes. Am I saying it's a bigger challenge than the rise of radical Islam? Yes. Bigger challenge than the anti-God, anti-Christian education and universities? Yes. The reality is modernity has done more damage to the church than all the persecution and heretics combined. Okay? Another big call. But if you look at history, persecution actually led to the growth of the church. Um, one particular early church father, a guy called Tertullian, actually said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
In other words, people were dying for their faith and the church just kept exploding, all right? So persecution hasn't damaged the church. Heretics have not damaged the church in the way that this damages the church. Heretics actually forced the church to sharpen and articulate correct doctrine. It forced the church to figure out what do we believe. So actually it was a good thing. That's how we ended up with the Nicene Creed. Modernity is the greatest challenge that the Western church has ever faced. So let me tell you how in the five minutes we've left. Modernity is a challenge to the church, not in an in-your-face way. It's not in-your-face like heresy or persecution or atheism, although that challenge still exists and is probably on the rise. Persecution of the church is on the rise and is going to continue to rise in the West, all right? But the very nature of an in-your-face challenge actually forces us to respond, right? Modernity doesn't do it that way. Modernity is really subtle. Instead of saying, no, we don't allow faith here, modernity says we don't need faith here. Instead of going, your faith's not welcome, it's like, eh, we don't care. It's a, it's a completely indifference to anything that the church brings is what modernity does. So the damage done by modernity to the church is not through militantly opposing the church, it's through distorting what people believe about the church. Jesus said, man does not live by faith, like by bread alone, but modernity goes, yeah, they do. Maybe not by bread alone, but certainly by science and technology and Wi-Fi. We're good. We don't need the church. We don't need faith. We don't need God. So it's a lot. It's not, you don't, you're not welcome here. It's like, yeah, we don't need it. Now, has the church disappeared as a result of modernity? No. Many churches are flourishing, but it has changed the church as a result of modernity. And some of the changes don't matter, but some of them really do. And if we're going to be in the world but not of the world, we need to understand the world we live in, okay? Because the world we live in is modernity. And we can't escape it, and it has an impact on discipleship. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the damages of modernity next week rather than go over time or start something today. So let me just finish. I'll just say this to finish it off. The capital C Church of Jesus Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ, has always been outworked via the lowercase c church, the local church, right? The church is outworked by churches, is what I'm saying. But even from its earliest days, the church has always had a global outlook, right? A global heart. Um, The spread of the gospel has always been a driving force within the church because (coughs) our God is the God of the whole world, right? Not just the Western world. Despite what people say, Christianity is not actually a Western religion, okay? So we're local but we're also global. Um, John Wesley had this amazing statement, which I love. He said, the whole world is my parish. Parish is just a word for congregation. The whole world is my parish. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, and we've got to love the world too. So our challenge, which we'll continue on with next week, is to be effective locally through the outworking of our local church and to be effective globally to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a world that is either anti-us or indifferent to us. The local church will never be out of date or unnecessary. We've got to love our world, our community, but we also need to stretch to love the world as well. And we're going to discuss more next week on how we're going to do that. We're going to also finish off with modernity next week, and um, we're going to look at how we're going to respond. So thank you for coming, and we are done. Thanks, guys. If you've got any questions, come and see me. very happy to chat and talk, even though my voice is going. <laughs>